we're in a sermon series. Uh, let me just give you a little update, then I'll release the kids. Uh, it's called Spirit-Empowered Mission. We're looking at the book of Acts. We're going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And um, it, actually, the end of Acts, chapter 28, where it ends, verse 31, the last verse of the book of Acts, it says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke, the author of Acts, ends the book with the same thing he begins the book when he writes at the very beginning that I'm writing this book in addition to the book I have already written that tells all about Jesus and all that Jesus did and began to do until he was taken up and now I'm continuing the work. I'm continuing the work. Acts is about mission. It's about what Jesus is continually doing. It opens up and it ends with the same thing. And we, the church, are picking up chapter 29 and what God is doing on mission. Saving people, loving people, restoring people, restoring marriages, restoring relationships. And most importantly, forgiving sins because he rose from the grave. So we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. I'm going to pray uh, and then we'll get started together. Father, thank you for this wonderful narrative that, that, that you have raised up Luke to give us and, and the early working of the church and the empowerment of the Spirit, in, in just empowering your people to live on mission for Jesus and telling everyone about Jesus, Lord. And that's what we're all about here today. That's what we're about here every day. So we pray as we open up your word, as we look at Scripture, as we encounter Christ, you would get glory. Lord, as the kids go out with their teachers as well, we pray that they would come to know and love Jesus all the more today because we gathered around your word, empowered by your spirit for your glory and for your honor. So we love you. We look forward with prayers of expectation that you will meet with us today so you, Lord, would get all praise and worship. In Jesus' good name, amen. Amen, amen. So the kids could go. As I said, it's about the work of Jesus. Is there an emphasis on the book of Acts? That has to do with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. We saw that last week on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit, as promised, had descended on the people that had gathered and baptized them. And Well, Jesus baptized them, but with the Holy Spirit. And the book is really about the continuing work of Jesus. They were told, if you remember, the disciples and the apostles were told to wait. Jesus died, rose, ministered for 40 days, Ten days later, Pentecost, 50, 50 days, rises from the grave. Fifty days later, the power of the Holy Spirit comes and he baptizes them. If you remember, Jesus himself was, was, was in the you know, wilderness, was baptized by John, and the Spirit descended on Jesus and anointed him and empowered him for the work of the ministry. All throughout Jesus' life. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples and to the apostles, wait. You have to wait. You have to wait for the power. When the power comes, you will be my witnesses. It will empower you to live and to declare the good news of all that I have done, all that I am. And you then will go into the world and be witnesses of the work and the person of Jesus. That's the book of Acts. You could take out little pieces and you can go, you know, skewed in different ways. It's a book about Jesus. It's a book about the mission of Jesus. So Peter preaches today his first sermon. His first, this is the first recorded Christian sermon. Well, it's the actual first Christian sermon ever preached in the life of the church. So this is important, right? Amen? All right, you're alive, you're awake, come on. All right. 
Three headings today. First, we'll look at the connection. Peter wants to make a connection for the crowd. He wants to point to something. Second, we're going to look at the Christ, because that's what the book is about. The Christ. And finally, there is conviction. Because when Christ is preached, there's conviction. So you have the connection, the Christ, and the conviction. First, the connection. Verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. I'll put it up on the screen, but hopefully you have a Bible. If not, there's some back there. If you don't have one, please take it with you. If you have one and it's at home, then I will assume you've memorized it all. All right. Come on, you should know that by now. All right, all right. Actually, chapter 2. I'm going to go back a little bit to 12. Now I'm going to wake you up. All right, come on. Is there, there's coffee back there? No. Anyway, cha- verse 12, chapter 2. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, the ascension had come, the Holy Spirit had come, and they were amazed and they perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? They're speaking in tongues. They're speaking the gospel in different languages. What does this mean? Others mocked, said they're filled with new wine. And Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and, and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So there are some people there that were mocking, saying, look, it's nine o'clock. They must be drunk. It must be some drunk, early drunk fest uh, going on here. And Peter says, no, that's not the case. And you see Peter taking leadership standing up among the 11, and, 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 he, and he preaches, and, he, and he's declaring and witnessing what is taking place. He's going to answer their question. What does this mean? Peter's like, it's not drunk. They're not drunk. And he goes on to preach all about Jesus. Now, before we go and look at this, let me, ju- let me just say one thing, and I, I think I want us, everyone to see this principle here. Because Paul, excuse me, Peter's life was this major transformation in the gospel accounts, Peter was like regularly sticking his feet and his foot in his mouth, right? Reminds me of me, okay? When Jesus stopped to look at the scenery, it was Peter who bumped into him because he wanted to be the first guy. Peter would be the one to say, I will die for you. Where you go, I will go. I will die for you. And Jesus like, yeah, all right. Within a very short time, you're going to deny me, Peter. Peter is the one who drew his sword, if you remember the story in the the garden, and cuts the man's ear off. Now, he wasn't trying to cut his ear off. He was trying to cut his head off. The guy just moved, okay? And his ear came off. He appears to be capricious at times, not really knowing what he's talking about at other times. Yet in chapter 1, we see him taking some kind of leadership. You see, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, that he is reading scripture. He's leading the, the apostles. They're trying to pick another guy to take place of Judas, who hung himself, and so that the, you know, the apostles can be returned to that 12. But now, this sermon, this time, is not just in, in the company of people that he knows very well, there's more people there. There's, there's, a, there, there's a crowds there. In fact, some people think that he's near the temple courts so and there would be some hostility also brewing in Jerusalem because of Jesus. And now Peter stands up and proclaims this, this wonderful and extraordinary, powerful message. And here's the principle I think that we need to know that I don't want us to miss. No matter, no matter what your sins are, no matter how poorly you failed Jesus. 
that doesn't mean in God's providences and God's purposes that we are forever confined to some insignificant role in the kingdom and the mission of God. God does, God will restore you. God does remake and refashion us. No matter how broken you may be, no matter how much or how far you have turned and walked away, it's never, never, never too late. God will take your life. God will take my life, the brokenness. Some of you know my testimony, the brokenness of your life, if you give it to him. And he will use it for his kingdom and for his glory. Don't believe the lie that you are so broken that you cannot be used. You are so far away, God cannot take that brokenness and use you for him. That's from Satan. That's not from God. Peter said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know what you're all talking about. I don't know him. And then you see this transformation take place. After the resurrection, during the 40 days, during those 10 days in between, and then the Spirit comes. And Peter repents, forgiven, stands, and preaches the first message. Psalm 18 says, He sent me from on high. He took me, David talking. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy. God was my support. uh, David writes in Psalm 18 again, He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David speaking from experience and the brokenness. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. And then he cries out in Psalm 18 down in 49, For this, because of your love, your power, your deliverance, I will praise you, O Lord, among all the nations and sing to your name great salvation he brings to his king and showed steadfast love to the anointed King David and to his offsprings forever. That's us, his offspring by faith. God is not done with Peter. He's not done with you. If you're here this morning, don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. Peter, yielded and full of the Spirit, yields his life, full of the Spirit, stands up and says, Give me all your money. No, he didn't do that. Just want to make sure you're alive. That's what you, some people think he said, but he didn't. He actually stands up and, and he reaches back and he makes a connection from the, what is going on at Pentecost, what they see and they say they're all drunk, to what the Old Testament and what God had already spoken through the promises of God's word. Verse, uh, verse 16, verse 17, he talks about Joel. And in the last days, he says, and in the last days, Well, verse 16, what is this is what was uttered was through the prophet Joel. He already said, he goes back to the Old Testament. He makes that connection. Verse 17, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, what's really important that you understand, you can, you can underline in your Bible, is the word last days. The word last days means that not all this is happening at once. What, what Peter is saying is the last days are among us. In the Hebrew mind, and according to the scripture, the last days are the days between the first advent of Christ, the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and his return. That is all of the last days. Hebrews 1 makes it clear. Long ago, God spoke in many ways 
to our fathers and through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's the last days. And if you don't know that that's the last days, you'll be confused. You'll read the scripture and you think, well, all this hasn't happened yet as, you read, as we'll continue to read through this. It's because the last days is inaugurated. That's what Peter is saying. Joel is talking about all that's going to take place in the last days. In other words, the ball is rolling. The cat is out of the bag. The last days has begun. Okay? In fact, in the book of Joel, where he quotes this from, Joel was, Joel was, was preaching. There had been a, a locust invasion. And they, they had eaten all the crops. And, you know, agriculturally, uh, that's a problem, right? Even for us today. But back then, specifically, because they were all about, their whole economy was around agriculture. It was life or death. And Joel tells them back in Joel in the Old Testament that things are going to get worse that the judgment of the locust that ate all the crop is a foretaste of a greater judgment. And in the midst of this prophecy, we'll turn to it now, you can read it later on. In the midst of this prophecy, Joel talks about this blessing that's going to come in these latter days. And he calls the people to repent, and he calls them to to repent of their sins, and and he talks about this, this Messiah, this messianic age that's going to come in the day of the Lord, and then when the Spirit will be poured out. And, and Peter can't miss that Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled, starting with Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. So Peter's sitting back and he sees what's happening at Pentecost and he reaches back and he makes a connection and says, Joel wrote about this, that when the last days begins, there'll be the pouring out of the Spirit. There'll be people who speak in tongues, people who will be filled with the Holy Spirit, people will prophesy and dream dreams. He says it's not going to be just the apostles. It's not going to be just the leaders. It's going to be everyone. Look what he says. It shall be, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of flesh. That's what he means, all flesh. It's not specific to gender, men and women. Not specific to categories of socioeconomic uh, class. There's going to be servants and those who are wealthy, filled with the spirit. It's not restricted to the old and the young or the young. It's both. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out, he says. Now, let me just take a, just a little sidetrack here. Because some people read this and they want to take that whole thing with prophecy. We talked about tongues two weeks ago. And let me just, let me just talk about prophecy for a minute, okay? Because we're going to see this in Acts. So I just want to lay a foundation. Okay? There are Old Testament and New Tef- Testament prophets. They're office of prophets. And God spoke to these prophets in such a way that it was authoritative. We wrote it down. It's done. Ephesians 5 says that the prophets and the apostles who wrote the scripture has ceased. We don't have no more prophets that way. No one can tell you, thus saith the Lord, as the Old Testament and New Testament prophets have said. If they do, run. Don't drink the Kool-Aid and run, okay? Because the Bible is done. It's written. We have that kind of authoritative spoken word of the prophets and the apostles. The prophets wrote most of the Old Testament. The apostles wrote most of the New. Okay, so we have that. In the New Testament, which we covered in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, 13, and 14, when we preached through that series, there's, there's the gift of prophecy, and that's the difference between the two. Okay, the prophets who wrote Scripture is no longer, but the gift of prophecy, the Bible says, will continue until Jesus comes. Okay, and there's a difference between the two. Prophecy in the New Testament, first and foremost, now get this, first and foremost, is the proclamation of 
the authoritative word of God. Taking the word, expositing the word, teaching from the word, bringing application to the word. Right? And, and when, when, when someone comes up here and preaches, hopefully through the power of the spirit, there, there's conviction. There, there is a, there's the work of the spirit gripping our hearts and convicting us in the power of the spirit. That is the general prophecy or that is the general uh, gift of prophecy. No new revelation, right? I'm, I'm here to take the Bible, explain its meaning, give application. But the Bible in the New Testament does talk about the gift of prophecy. And I would say that the gift of prophecy, which some of you may have, is this more spontaneous being prompted and sustained by the Spirit that gives a message for our edification, okay? Prompted, sustained, Spirit-filled message for our edification. David Hill in his book called New Testament Prophecy said this. This is a good, is a good uh, um, quote. Those who have grasped the meaning of Scripture... This is talking about gifts of prophecy. Those who have grasped the meaning of Scripture perceive its powerful relevance to the life of the individual, the church, and society, and declare the message fearlessly. You ever hear somebody preach with such conviction? And the Word of God is being preached, explained, and there is such conviction of the heart? That's what he's talking about. Some people just have that gift. And when they teach and when they preach, they, they speak, and you, it, it, it's, it's convicting. And the question is, well, can the prophet still speak today about the future? I'd like to know. Going to OTB this afternoon, I'm wondering. No. <laughs> it happened in Acts 11. Someone did speak about a famine that was coming, so the church can prepare for that coming famine. Could that happen today? Yes, I believe it can. Are there wackos, weirdos, and nutjobs out there? Absolutely. But we don't throw that gift away because of, you know, give me all your money at $50 and I will promise, you know, all that. We don't, you know, could, could God speak in a congregation? Could God speak to us in community group? In a spirit prompted, spirit sustained? That, that doesn't carry this intrinsic power and authority as the Old Testament and New Testament prophets have spoken in Scripture. There could be error. We have to discern. We have to look at the word of God. This is the final authority. Not, I don't care if someone has the gift of prophecy or not. Even in Corinthians, Paul's talking about prophecy, and he says, but they ought to heed my word. This is, we, everything comes under this. The scripture is the final authority. Wayne Grudem great theologian, said this about the gift of prophecy. He says, it is the reception of and subsequent transmission of spontaneous, divinely originating revelation. John Piper says this about the gift of the, of the prophecy. It is a spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained utterance that does not carry intrinsic divine authority and can be mixed with error. So, let me wrap it up because we're going to look at this as we go through Acts. There is prophets, Old and New Testament prophets, who spoke and they are authoritative, perfectly written for us in Scripture. That has ceased. The New Testament, can there be gifts of prophecy with the proclamation of the word is primary? Explaining the word, expositing the word, application of the word? Yes. Could there be a spoken word that that God would speak to us? Absolutely. This is the final grid. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. Because we're going to see that in Acts. I want to get that out there. We're going to see that in Acts. Verse 19 and 20 point to the end of the last days. Look what he says in verse 19 and 20. And I will show wonders in the heavens above... And signs on the earth, 
below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes and great and magnificent day. He's talking about the return of Christ. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name shall be saved. Some people look at that and say, you know what, he's pointing to the crucifixion when, when, the, when the darkness came over the crowd. I don't think so. I think, I think what Peter is taking Joel and talking to the day when Christ returns. When, when this cataclysmic judgment comes, this, this prediction of God's horrific judgment that will come on the earth. And what Peter is saying is, it's begun. The outpouring of the Spirit, all that's going to take place, and at the end, on the end of the end of the end, you know, when the end comes. I mean, we talk about the end days being when Jesus came and then when Jesus comes again, but somewhere in between that, there's going to be, like, right at the end. We won't know when that is, but we'll see this. We'll see this. The Messianic age has begun, and God's horrific judgment predicted is not far. So he's saying, be ready. He's the Messiah. It's been promised so what's left to do? Verse 21. Everyone call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's the mercy of God. Judgment's coming. The Messianic age is here. The gospel's being preached. Turn. Trust Christ. If you're here this morning, trust Christ. What has been said is going to happen. It's been fulfilled. The end will come. Look at the Christ. Verse 22. We'll go back to that. Verses 22, if you have your Bible, verses 22 through 36, let me state the obvious before we look at it. The Bible is not primarily a book of do's and don'ts. I know some of you may have been raised that way. Should I do this? Should I don't do this? The book is not primarily about do's and don'ts. The book is not primarily about principles to live by. The book is primarily about a person to live for. Not principles to live by, but a person to live for. Dr. Luke tells us at the end of the gospel, according to Luke in verse 20, uh, chapter 24, there was two disciples walking around the road to Emmaus. Jesus shows up with them. Wow, she shows up. Pretty cool. And he's walking along. He's like, what are you guys talking about? And like, really, you don't know? Like, did you just get here? And they start telling him about Jesus. They're telling Jesus about Jesus. Kind of weird if you think about it. Like when your eyes are opened up later on, like, wow, we're trying to tell him about himself. And Jesus turns to him and says, foolish one, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's talking about the Old Testament. What it is necessary that the Christ should suffer. He should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then Jesus, beginning with Moses, the, the Pentateuch, the five books, and all the prophets, all of scripture, he interprets to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. When the Holy Spirit, listen, works among those who belong to Jesus in such a way that the Bible's preached, the Bible's studied, the Bible is declared, Jesus gets preached. Jesus gets preached. And one of the men who showed me that, I think who just keeps pointing me back to Jesus, is a man by the name of Dr. Timothy Keller. Dr. Keller is a, is a pastor at the Presbyterian Church in New York City. Um, he is, he's a, a, a godly man who's wrote many books, Prodigal God, um, uh, Mission of Mercy, a whole bunch of books. He loves to point people back to Jesus. So what I got is a short clip, about two and a half minutes, about, so I was at the conference, but somebody did a really cool video with it, about Jesus being all of Scripture. Everything in Scripture points to Jesus. Are we ready with the volume? Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. 
Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> is that a type? See, that's not typology, it's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. It's not about us. It's not just principles to follow. It's a person to live for. Peter understands that full of the Holy Spirit speaks, verse 22. It's about Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. He's not a ghost. He's not some sort of wishful thinking. He's not a make-believe hero. Peter's speaking to those who actually physically saw Jesus. He's speaking to people who less than two months ago was hanging on a cross. They saw him physically feeding the hungry, healing the sick teaching, ministering, raising people from the grave like Lazarus. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry doing things that they've never seen before. That's who he's speaking to. His point, he says, God was his endorsee, a man attested to you, to display, to demonstrate, that's what that word means, to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What does that mean? It means that God was endorsing, God was empowering, God was with Jesus, pointing to the deity and the work and the ministry of Jesus. He's the God man, that's what he's saying. All the miraculous ministry, all those evidences are God's approval, God's stamp upon him verifying who Jesus was, the God man. That's what he's saying, you know that. In fact, John the Baptist, again, back to Lucas, remember, it's a a two-volume book, volume one, volume two, in Luke, very interesting, John the Baptist is in jail. All right, he's having doubts. He's locked up. He's going to get beheaded. Maybe if you were there, you might have a little doubt too, right? Let's not beat up on the guy, right? He's having some doubts. And he says to his disciples, John the Baptist says to his disciples, go and ask the Messiah, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one? Or shall we look for somebody else? And what does Jesus say? 
Go and tell John. Go and tell John what you've seen. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. Ministry. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised, but raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Go and tell him all that the prophets spoke about in the past has come true. You see it in the work that I'm doing. That's what he tells them. And, and Peter is saying, look, you guys know this, Hebrews. Jews know the word of God. You know that when the Messiah comes, this is going to happen. At his incarnation, this is going to happen. He reminds them. And then he talks about his crucifixion, which is in the next one. Uh, verse 23. I'm sorry, I got the wrong up. That should say, not resurrection, but crucifixion. So it's, it's incarnation, crucifixion. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All right, I love that verse. We've talked about that before. It clearly shows the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of making decisions. Foreknowledge, definite plan, foreknowledge of God, but you <laughs> crucified him, right? So we have these choices to make, and yet God is sovereign. And his sovereignty doesn't prevent, doesn't thwart the decisions and the sovereignty that God has to reign and rule over all his creation. He is big enough, he is omnipotent enough to move all of creation, bend all of our stupidness and our silliness and our sinfulness for his own glory and for his honor. And the greatest place to see that is the display of the cross. Wayne Grudem, again, there is not a better quote on God's sovereignty and human responsibility than this one. Wayne Grudem writes in his, in his Systemat book, God causes all things that happen, but that he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results and for which we are held accountable. Exactly how God combines his providential sovereign control with our willing and significant choices, Scripture does not explain to us. But rather than deny one aspect of the other, we should accept both and attempt to be faithful to the teaching authority of Scripture. I'm like, that is great. Peter will say in chapter 4 that he's praying. He said that while they're in Jerusalem, he's, he's talking to the Lord. They gathered together against your holy servant, God, against Jesus. But you, God, anointed him and Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand, O oh God, whatever your plan, O oh God, has determined to take place. I love that verse because it says the king's those in authority, the Gentiles, that's us, the Jews, they were all part of the reason Jesus was crucified. Martin Luther, great reformer, used to say, I carry the nails in my pocket. Your sin, my sin, caused his suffering and final execution. And the resurrection, because it's not over. The resurrection, I got everything wrong today. All right, let me put it back. Verse 24. PowerPoint last minute. See the incarnation, we see the crucifixion, and now we see the resurrection. Verse 24. But God. Ha! I love it. Verse 24. Look what he says. God raised them up. God raised them up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. The validity of Jesus' claims about himself rests on the fact of his resurrection from the grave. Let me tell you four things that are so important about the resurrection. Number one, 
The resurrection is evidence that Christ was God. Resurrection is evidence that Christ was God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. The fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross and died doesn't prove anything. Many men went to the cross and died. But because he rose from the grave, Roman 1 says that it was declared, it was verified that he is the eternal Son of God in power according to the Spirit. It nailed it, the resurrection from the grave. Number two, the resurrection is proof positive that Christ forgives sins. Christ can forgive you of your sins. You know how you know? Because he rose from the grave. Scripture says if he has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still dead in your sins. Romans 6 tells us that because he died, we believe in him, we too will rise from the grave. That our sins can be forgiven. The resurrection is proof that he's God, is proof that he can forgive sins, and it's proof that he has power over death. Christ rose from the grave, Paul says, never to die again. Death no longer has power over him. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united him in a resurrection like his. And finally, one of my favorite verses. Not only is Christ's resurrection proof positive and evidence that he is eternally God, that he forgives sins, that he has power over death. But let me tell you something, folks. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us, proves to us, and demonstrates power over Satan. Amen? Amen. Colossians 2. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. You were dead and, and in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him, forgiving all your sins by canceling the record of debt that your sin owed that stood between us and its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. I love that. It's all about Jesus his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and finally his affirmation. Let's read these verses together. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's quoting Psalm 16. For he is at my right hand that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, he says, I, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and he himself is in the tomb, even on this day. What is he saying? David said, he's given affirmation that the Old Testament points to Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Muhammad's dead. Confucius is dead. When Oprah dies, she will die. She'll be in the grave also for those who worship her. I was at the rescue mission not that long ago and, and preaching about the resurrection of Jesus and talking about how Muhammad's bones were in the grave. And let me tell you, there's a few guys waiting for me when I got out of there. But that's okay. Because that's a fact. Their bones are in the grave. Jesus' grave is empty. He's saying even David. Even great King David is dead. His bones are in the grave. His bones are in the grave. Therefore, being a prophet, verse 30, that's David, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath, to, an oath to him that he would set one aside, one of his descendants on his throne. You see what he's saying? He's saying David saw this. David saw this. David, he's at my right hand. He's not talking about himself. David was never at the right hand of the Father. He's talking about Jesus. 
the Holy One will not be left in the grave. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. David did 800 years, 1,000 years before that he was not abandoned to Hades or see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Verse 33, let me move it up for you. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this day that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your foothold. Here's the whole point. All those verses, here's the whole point. David, the great king of Israel, to whom the Israelites look to as being great is not the greatest. He's not the hero of the Hebrew scriptures. He's not the hero of, his bones are in the grave, right? He himself, David was confident that God made a promise that there would be someone raised up who would abandon death, who who would escape death, excuse me. And David, even though he was king, he's not the exalted king. He is not the one risen who sits at the right hand of the Father. When he says, my Lord said to my Lord, you know what he's saying? He's talking about the deity of Christ. He's saying, my Lord, that's the Father, said to the Christ, to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. He's not just the Messiah. He's saying he has all authority, all power, all sovereignty belongs to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Not to King David. And you might love these prophets as, as the, the Islamics love prophet, their prophets. Jesus is king. Jesus did not go into the grave and stay there. Jesus rose from the grave. And the great prophets of the Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus and his deity. Verse 36. So then, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, I just made it clear to you, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom what? You crucified. Ah! Second time he said it. You've crucified him. God validates Christ as the Messiah from rising from the grave. And there's only one thing to do. Look at, look at with me the next verse. Okay, and that's the conviction. Look at the conviction. Now, he says, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And may I add verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what is Peter doing? Peter's preaching a message, and what's he asking for? Where are you going to respond? They're like, what are we going to do? That's the way we preach here. We hear the word of God. We sing songs. We, we should respond. What is the spirit of God saying to you today? What is the spirit of God telling you today? How will you respond to God today? When we get done, we have the band come up and don't come up now. But when we do, we're responding. Think, pray. What is God asking of me? Are there, are there sins that I need to repent from? Is there encouragement that I need to drink in? Are there promises that I need to cling to? Respond. Don't miss out on that. Respond. Here the Bible's preached 
And what happens, it says they were cut to the heart. That word cut to the heart means they were pierced. They were stabbed to the heart. Why? He told them three times. You put him to death. You crucified him. And they were cut to the heart. Some of them might have been 40, 50, 50, 50 days earlier. Crucify him. They might have been the same guys in the crowd. They might have been the same ones in the crowd who were yelling, crucify him, we'll take Barabbas, and we want you to crucify Christ. Fifty days later, Peter's telling him, look, Joel said it, David said it, the Psalms say it, everything points to Jesus. God validated his life by rising from the grave, and you murdered him. They were pierced to the heart. Oh, my. Can you imagine being one that was pierced? Can you imagine being one of those? Well, you are. So am I. So am I. When you realize it's not just sin out there, it's sin in here. When you realize that you are the one, I'm the one he died for, I'm, it was my sins, my rebellion that he died for, that he was crucified for, that he could have called legions of angels down and wiped us all out, but he stayed hung on a cross, being flogged, being nailed, and then crucified on a cross. When you realize that, the Bible speaks clearly in the scripture that it's about our sin. There's a man by the name of Dr. Ginn. He was at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary when I was up there in Bible training. And he told about Malcolm Muggeridge. Some of you may know him. He wrote some books. He's a journalist. He, he wrote a story. He told a story about uh, Malcolm Muggeridge when he was a journalist and he found himself in India. And he had left his residence one night at a hut. He was at it, residence one night to go for a swim. And as he entered the water, it started getting dark. Across the river, he saw a young woman bathing. Muggeridge impulsively felt the allure and temptation of the moment. He was alone. There was nobody around. No one would know. He had often felt this struggle, this kind of struggle, but had resisted because he was a married man. Traveled with his wife. But on this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of his conscience and and he swam furiously toward this woman, his mind fed with the fantasy of stolen waters, how sweet it would be. So he dove in the water, he swam and he swam. Finally, in a few feet, just, just a few feet from her, he emerged from the water and what he saw as he looked into the woman's sunken eyes, he realized she was a leper, a toothless woman grinning at him. He was gripped and disgusted and thought to himself, what a wretched man am I. Personal. G.K. Chesterton was asked by the London Times and many other people to write an essay on what's wrong with the world. He sent his telegram in, dear sir, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. Peter says, Repent. Metanoia, meta implies change. Uh, meta implies change. Noia means to perceive with the mind. Repent. That's what he's calling us to do, repent. Turn from your sin. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. It's first intellectual. Peter says, David wrote it. You know it. You've been studying it. You see it. You saw it. You witnessed it. He was ministering to you. You know the scriptures. Think. Think. What your sin has done, think it through. It's intellectual. A turning from, I've sinned, personally against a holy God who loves me, who died for me, who rose for me, and I stuck my finger in his face. Think it through. It's intellectual. It's also emotional. Cuts at the heart is an emotional aspect 
that's, that's deep within the soul. It's a brokenness of our emotional uh, 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 acknowledgement. Our sin is primarily against God. It's personal. It's not just God doesn't give us all laws and stick it up on the wall and goes about his business. His law is a reflection of his character. It's personal. Just like when your kids sin against you. It's not the cookie they took when you weren't looking. It's that you told them not to take it, right? It's intellectual, it's emotional, but repentance is act of the will. There was a time in the prodigal son when he repented, he said, I'm going up, I'm going to my dad. I'm going. I'm going. I'm going to my dad. I'm going to get out of this pig pen. I'm going, and there's the father embracing him and loving him and restoring him. But he had to go. He had to turn. And it says here in our text that that, uh, he says, repent, turn from your sin, acknowledge your sin. It's emotional. It's an act of the will, turning from sin, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now understand this, if some of you have caught that, I hope you have, it almost sounds like if you repent and be baptized, water baptism, we have a tank under here, we baptize all the time, okay, if you're baptized, if you repent and you're baptized, then you'll receive the forgiveness of your sins. If you read that text, you may walk away from that. So if that's bothersome, and some people have used that verse to say you need to be water baptized in order to be saved, let me just explain to you. Circle the word for in your Bible. The word for in your Bible could mean for the purpose of, or to get forgiveness. In other words, repent, get forgiveness, repent and, and be baptized and get forgiveness for the purpose of being forgiven of your sins. That's what it could say, but that's not what it says. What it says is be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for, on the basis of, on the grounds of, because of forgiveness of sins. You see the difference? Let me, let me break it down really quick for you. You can say, I'm going to the barber, I'm going to the hair salon, I'm going to get my hair cut for the purpose of or to get a haircut, right? I'm going to the salon, I'm going to the barbershop for a haircut. What are you going there for? You're going there because of, purpose of getting a haircut. See that? But then you can use that same word and you could say, I'm going to court for, because of, on the grounds, the basis of a speeding ticket. I already got it. I didn't, but I'm just saying, you could. So, in other words, I'm going there to get something. I'm going for the purpose of getting a haircut. Or I'm going to court for a ticket I got the other day. What Peter is saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for, not to get forgiveness, but because of, on the grounds, on the basis of your forgiveness of your sins. So the forgiveness of sins is the basis, the grounds for being baptized. That's what he's saying. Repent. Be baptized because Christians should be baptized in water because you've received the forgiveness of your sins by the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying, and that's what all of Scripture teaches. So let me ask you, followers of Christ, if you're here, have you been baptized? If you're a follower of Jesus, say, you know what? I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. The Bible does not speak about someone following Jesus and have never been baptized. The way it works is I repent, I'm saved, I'm born anew, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then I get baptized. We're having a baptism class November 10th. If you call yourself a Christian and you've never been water baptized after you came to faith, come to that class. We'll talk all about baptism and your need to follow the will and the word of God. Verse 39, where there's conviction of sin. 
For the promises for you and your children, all are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Verse 40. And many other words he bore witness to Jesus and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, receiving of the word, repenting of their sins, were baptized. 3,000 people were saved. Do you know, ladies, gentlemen, brothers, sisters, do you know that your sin is personal against God? Do you know that God really does love you? That God really and truly promises you that if you turn from your sins, he will forgive you completely. Do you realize that you have no place to turn but to Jesus to wash away your sin? Are you willing to change the direction in your life? Are you willing to stop playing the game and turn to Christ? I'm gonna give you a chance as we go to communion because this bread that represents the body of Christ, the blood that was shed, Turn to John 19 if you have a Bible as the band comes up. John 19. I just want to wrap this up with one verse. The gospel according to John, verse 19. Listen to what it says. The gospel according to John, chapter 19, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 32. Listen to what John says. So the soldiers came, Jesus was being crucified, and broke the legs of the first man. I want to make sure he was dead. And the other who had been crucified with him. But it says, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But, verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Same verb. Well, same verb from the same verb. Pierced his side that Peter used, they were cut to the heart. As you come to communion this morning, remember that while Jesus hung on the cross, dying for your sins, for your forgiveness, his heart was pierced so that when your heart gets pierced, you can receive the forgiveness he offers. His heart was pierced, blood and water flown, so that when our heart is pierced of our conviction that we sinned against the Holy God, we can receive forgiveness of sins. The band's going to play. We're going to repent. If you're not a Christian, now's the day. Turn from your sins, trust in Jesus, and come and take communion. Maybe the first time you've ever taken communion as a Christian. I want to invite you to the table if you truly trusted Christ, if you truly repented of your sins, and you're putting your faith and your trust in Jesus. The bread is his body that was broken. The blood represents the cup of his blood that was shed. Come. If you're not a Christian, then just sit back. We'll talk with you after. We'd love to pray with you. We're glad you're here. Maybe you're here and you're a believer and you're thinking, you know what, I'm living my life. I am, uh, I'm not really taking my sin very personally. I'm not thinking how, how it impacts and breaks the heart of God. I need to repent myself. Now's the time. The band's gonna play, we're gonna repent. And when you're ready, come on up. Take the bread, take the cup, and enjoy the ce- and celebrate the Lord's forgiveness. Father, thank you for your spirit that brings conviction of our sin. It hurts sometimes. It pierces our heart sometimes, Lord. But it is a sign of your love. It is a sign of your goodness. It is a sign of your mercy toward us, Lord. So help us to be convicted of the Spirit of, by the Spirit of God for our sins. And Lord, help us to embrace and celebrate the forgiveness that Jesus offers and all that he did for us while he went to the cross, dying in our place, rising from the grave, guaranteeing, solidifying, and proving without a doubt He is God, he forgives sins, he rose from the grave. Father, help us to respond 
in a way that gives you much glory. In Jesus' name, amen.